Matthew chapter 13. We'll begin at verse 53. That's where we left off last week and again on Sunday. Matthew 13, 53. And Lord, I pray for Your blessing again on Your Word, for Your Spirit to guide us through. Thank You for the blessing of allowing us tonight, especially, Lord, to see Your Son. God, thank You for this time. Teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue moving in Matthew. And it it strikes me that there's such a... uh, It's always what I need. Have you noticed that? When you open the Word, He's always right where you need Him to be. He always meets you where you are. The Word is always where I need Him to be. This week, I especially wanted to see Jesus. Um, Last week, we've had, in fact, the last several times we've met, in Matthew 13, we've been going through the kingdom parables, and we have been just saturated with the teaching of Jesus. And it's such a blessing, but it can get intense as well. And I have prayed as we've gone through this to to try and pull out everything we can. I know there's so much more in there that, that none of us even saw that we'll see next time around. And I love the fact that Jesus seeds His Word deep inside of us so that even what we're hearing, sometimes we miss nuances, we, we miss things that He's saying, but they're, they're seeded in our hearts and they begin to grow and, and show things and reveal things to us at other times. It's fantastic. But sometimes, though I love to hear Jesus and I always want to hear His voice, I also want to see Him. I just want to watch Him. There's something powerful Beyond example, there's something about just watching Jesus. It's why I love all the Jesus movies. I know it's just an actor, but the Jesus film itself, Jesus of Nazareth, all the different Jesus movies, Ben-Hur, when he kind of flits by the screen, you just see his back as he's walking away, and you go, oh, there's Jesus. I love watching him. And that's what we are privileged to do tonight. He will teach, he will show, he'll he'll speak some some words of truth, but mostly we're just going to watch Jesus. And I encourage you to pay very close attention to what it is that He does. How He behaves. How He treats His followers. How He treats lost people. What what His emphasis is. Just just watch Jesus tonight. Matthew 13.53 When Jesus had finished the parables, He departed from there. Now you remember where He was when He was telling these parables. was up near the Galilee, up in in the Galilee region. I'm near those tri-cities that have rejected Him. Well, He departs from there. That part of His ministry here is completed. He's two years plus into His ministry. And all that time spent going back and forth between those three cities that we've mentioned before, that time is over. The rejection has happened. And so now, He goes back again to His hometown of Nazareth. He came to His hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Half-brothers, really. They were the sons of Joseph and Mary. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Again, we're two years into Jesus' ministry by now. And the last time Jesus tried to teach in Nazareth, it was at the beginning of his ministry as he first proclaimed who he was and what his mission was. We read about that in Luke chapter 4. And at that point, the people were so incensed and upset, they took such an offense at him, they tried to drive him out of the city and throw him off of the cliff, what today is called Mount Precipice, and it's not just a little hill, gang. It's a cliff. There's a, a long way down to rocky crags below. And Jesus just walked through them and went on his way. That's how it all started. But now he's back in Nazareth, and the same thing plays out again. It, it's slightly different. The people are astonished by his teaching. The people are amazed by His power. 
And his reputation obviously precedes him. But the same old familiarity breeds contempt. As Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And those people would have heard him say that before. He's repeating the same thing he said earlier, two years earlier. prophet is still without honor (laughs) in his hometown. Gang, the problem here is not with the rabbi, but with the reception. The issue is not with the information. Really, it's with the informality. We know him. He's Jesus, carpenter's son. We watched him grow up. Who does he think he is? Coming off with all these powers. Ooh, and this teaching. Oh, what an impressive guy. He's just one of the boys. Who is he trying to pass himself off to be? And so again, the hometown crowd are scandalized. That Greek Greek word, scandalizo, they took offense at him. And I'm reminded of what John said in the broader scheme. John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. That is very specific. Not only did he come to the Jewish people, his own, and they did not receive him. He came to his own hometown and they did not receive him. He came to his own family. His very brothers would not receive him and not believe in him until after the resurrection. But, John writes in verse 12, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And you may recall what Jesus said to those who who came from John the Baptist when John was in prison. He sent his uh, followers a little bit earlier, a few chapters earlier, to Jesus. And the followers said, are, are you the one? John needs to know. And Jesus said this, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me, who is not scandalized by me. And the people of Nazareth now, the second time around, are offended by him. They are scandalized by him. He said, you're blessed if you don't take offense at me. The blessing comes in the simple reception of Jesus Christ. Just believe in him. I see all kinds of ways that people come to Jesus. The most blessed people are those who hear about Christ and go, oh yeah, awesome, I accept that. The ones who have the hardest times are the ones who go, okay, but what about that? Or what about this over here? Or let's talk about that. The ones that have to keep bringing back to Jesus because they want to talk about everything else but Jesus, it's hard to get to the point of the blessing. But if you just come to Jesus and go, Lord, I take you as you are. Lord, I receive your word as you spoke it. I don't always get it, but I receive it as you spoke it. Blessed is the one who does not take offense at Jesus. And you know, I'm not even talking about the grand and glorious blessing of salvation. The generic, blessed are those who come to Jesus and are saved. I'm talking about something internal that happens when we come as believers in Jesus, when we come believing Him for who He is and for what He says. That we just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Jesus. Where does this man get his wisdom, they asked. But even though they recognized he had wisdom, the truth was lost in translation. Does that ever happen to you? Oh yeah, I I believe in Jesus. Oh, not in everything he says. But I think he's cool. I like the character of Jesus. So many people in the world today would say, I like the character of Jesus. I mean, who could watch one of those movies and not think he's a pretty cool guy? You know? He didn't fight back. Cool. But to come to Jesus and say, every word, Lord, that you spoke, I accept as true. Every action of yours, I accept as valid. To begin with that place of faith. To start by saying, I will believe Jesus for everything, and then the questions we'll deal with after that, as opposed to the other way around. I'm going to ask the questions first, and then I'll decide if I accept what he said or not. Blessed are those who do not take offense at him. There is a word for missing this blessing, gang, and the word for that is very simply unbelief. Verse 58, Jesus, the Bible tells us He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. I said earlier, watch what Jesus does, but also watch what He does not do. He doesn't do much. Not a whole lot of miraculous, not much healing, not much changing lives. Why? Because of their unbelief. Unbelief is the single key factor to Jesus not working in your life. To Him not being present in your life. It's not that Jesus was unable, it's that the people were unbelieving. 
God does a fantastic thing. I, I call this the Nazareth effect. The Nazareth effect is the atmosphere of unbelief. Where unbelief is so strong that though Jesus could do something, He doesn't because the belief is not there to support it. And what do you mean? I mean, even if He did the miraculous, they're not going to accept it anyway. Even if He did something fantastic, they're not going to believe it. So He's not going to waste His time. There's a, there's a great truth here. That was weird. <laughs> Let's just leave that off. <laughs> that was just kind of to wake you up. There's a great truth here. <laughs> the truth is this. God has directly connected His miraculous power to our faith. Didn't have to. He chose to. Because again, to God, faith is everything. Belief is everything. He wants us to learn that language. Well, some might say, are you saying that God's ability to do miracles is contingent on people's response? I'm saying this. The Greek word for unbelief here is apistos. Apistos. The word pistos is faith in the Greek. Ah, when you put the ah before any word in the Greek, you negate it. So in essence, unbelief is negated faith. It's faith that doesn't ever get there. It's lacking or no faith at all. Two quick things to note about unbelief. Number one, unbelief limits the flow of God's power. It limits the flow of God's power. And I'm not just talking about the miraculous, gang. I'm talking about the emotional. I'm talking about the relational. You know why relationships don't get mended? Unbelief. You know why people don't get healed? Unbelief. Why Jesus isn't moving the way you wish He would move in your life? It's unbelief. It's not that He doesn't want to move. It's unbelief. Our unbelief limits the flow of God's power. It's like a water faucet that gets all gummed up inside. I don't know if you ever had those old corrugated pipes in your home. Those things were nasty. Copper is better. The plastic is probably better than that. But those things would just eventually, over time, all the stuff that's in the water that we drink unknowingly builds up in the pipes. The water's still there, but it can't get through. The flow is, is blocked. I believe the, uh, the plumber's technical word for that is gunk. It's just gunk in the pipes. And that gunk keeps the water from getting through. In the same way, unbelief keeps the flow. The flow's there. But our unbelief blocks it. Secondly, unbelief limits the go of God's people. It limits the go of God's people. Not just any people, but God's people. There's so much He can and will accomplish through us. And let me talk to us as a fellowship here. There's so much God wants to do. And the only limitation on what God does in the Bridge Christian Fellowship is our belief or lack of it. We look out on that land, and as I talked about three weeks ago now, we say, boy, there's X amount of dollars needed to build a building. Is that a problem for God? We say, whoa, the county is, is now saying, you guys need to get out of that barn. Is that a problem for God? By the way, you may have caught this in my prayer, and I think this is really cool. I just want to share it with you. Jeff came in and, and said he ran into a lady at, at the store or something today, and somehow they got talking, and she found out that he was at the British Christian Fellowship, and she goes, oh, our church, and she's at the Baptist Church in Anacortes, she said, oh, our church has been praying for you guys. How cool is that? We heard you got shut down. No. <laughs> Still trucking. There is nothing that God cannot accomplish. The only reason why things are not accomplished is our unbelief. And He's only going to move as far as we're ready to go. And gang, I am ready to go, so start believing, will you? <laughs> it was unbelief that kept the people of Israel from entering the promised land in the first place. That is the reason they didn't go in. They did not believe God for His promises. So for 40 years they wandered. I don't have 40 years. You don't have... We don't have the time to waste. Because ultimately our unbelief can make the difference in the salvation of another person's life. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16 says, Those who provoked Him... Who provoked Him when they heard? Indeed, did all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses... And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That was the whole reason. 
And that's why people, Christians, don't move forward. That's why we get stuck in the rut because we just don't believe. The Nazareth effect. So where there's unbelief, God's power won't flow and God's people don't go when and where we're called to go and it's just unbelief. And I say, Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. Now as we've seen, chapters 10-13 through revealed a growing rejection of Jesus the King and His kingdom. And as chapter 14 unfolds, opens up before us, the conflict intensifies as we learn of the murder and execution of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Yohanan Hamatbil in the Hebrew. John who immerses. He had not been immersing anybody for two solid years because he had been sitting in prison where he was put by Herod. Only one third of his three year ministry, as I pointed out before, was spent as a voice crying in the wilderness, as a man baptizing the people one year and then two years of ministering from prison where he sat rotting in a cell. And now we learn that John is dead. At that time, verse 1 of chapter 14, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Very superstitious. Of course, people were very superstitious in those days. Of course, people are very superstitious in these days too. You know, it's it's curious to me that people will read the Bible and they'll say, what a superstitious numbskull as they're looking up their horoscope. You know, we are still a superstitious people. It's only Jesus who takes away all the phoniness. Verse 3, But for when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. This is an interesting family. For when Herod had John arrested again, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Why is it not lawful? Because she's your brother's wife, you moron. You're not supposed to be with her. It's my interpretation. The Bible says it's not lawful for you to have her. It takes the moron out of it. But I'm sure that thought had to be there. Although Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and it pleased Herod. You can only imagine how. So much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. How old was this girl? I don't know. 16? 17 years old? Mom said, You can get anything? Get John's head. I mean, disgusting. Awful. And so having been... Well, I already read that verse. Verse 9, Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. This is a guy with a real spine, you know. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. It's just incredible. In these verses we get a, a literary flashback. It's what that's called. What's happening right now is John is dead. But we flash back just a little bit to see that he was put into prison by Herod. And seen, we see why he was put into pr- prison by Herod the Tetrarch. Now be clear on this. Herod the Tetrarch is not the same Herod the Great who was massacring the, the infants at the birth of Jesus. It's a different Herod. This is his son, one of three sons that were spread out in the region under the authority of Rome, and they had authority. And Herod the Tetrarch, he had authority over the region of the Galilee. And this family, I'm telling you, was messed up big time. This is a weird... In fact, if you ever want just a weird study, go look up the family of Herod the Great. Herod, who named himself Herod the Great, kind of like Michael Jackson, the king of pop. You know, he's, the, he's Herod the Great. No one else called him great. He called himself great. He's a very short man, and I guess he was just making up for it. I don't know. But he had his sons. He killed many of his sons. He killed his own wife. Well, Herod the Tetrarch was one of three sons of Herod the Great that survived being one of his sons. He ruled along with his two older brothers over the region of Judea and Samaria. Caligula was in Rome at the time. And Herod the Great, or Herod, I'm sorry, Herod the Tetrarch was over that region of the Galilee, put there by Caligula. Again, it's a fascinating study. The, the, the family of this Herod the Great is bizarre and bloodthirsty. Would have been a huge hit reality show. You know, we had it on today, something like that would rival the Osbournes, the Hogans. But this Herod family was sadistic. 
Herod the Tetrarch was sorted. He was a spineless politician. He did whatever he had to do to keep, first of all, his wife happy, Herodias, his brother's wife, who now he had taken for himself. Sicko. His dinner guests, those who reclined at the table with him, even had power over him. I made an oath in front of all these people. I don't really want to behead John the Baptist, but I said I would, so I better do it. You know. He's a politician. We're told here in verse 12 that John's disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went, and they reported to Jesus, what do you do when tragedy hits you? What do you do when things go wrong, when you have heartbreak, or when you experience injustice? The best thing anybody can do is go tell Jesus. Just go tell Him. Go tell Him. You having a lousy day? Go tell Jesus. Someone mouths off at you at work? Go tell Jesus. Someone mouths off at you at home? Which probably happens more often if you have teenagers. Go tell Jesus. Whatever happens, facing devastation, heartbreak, go tell Him. I wonder if back in Matthew 11, when when John's disciples did come to Jesus and Jesus sent them back with the message, I wonder if a few of those disciples stayed behind because it was in that same chapter where Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will rest you. I will give you rest. Come to me. And so these disciples, at the moment they hear of John's beheading, they make a beeline and they go tell Jesus. Isaiah 42, verse 3 which Matthew quotes regarding Jesus back in Matthew 12, verse 20, says a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And he will faithfully bring forth justice. You feel like you're bent over backwards. Like you can't bend anymore. Like you barely have enough energy to get through the next five minutes. Guess what? Jesus is not going to put you out. And he's not going to snap your back. He will deal gently and faithfully and... He will bring about justice. You don't have to. You know how much peace that brings me in this world? I don't have to fight for my rights. Jesus will do it. He will take care. There's more than loss, however, going on here. Remember these disciples of the man who was just executed. They're probably feeling a little fearful for themselves. John's been killed and we're his followers. We could be next. And so they get out of there and they go to Jesus. And... In doing that, they they do the right thing, but Jesus Himself is John's cousin. Jesus loved John. He respected and honored John. What does He do with this information? Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus heard about John, He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by Himself. Why? Well, He was probably upset. He was probably somewhat emotional about it Himself, knowing that finally John was dead. But I think something else was going on. Paul tells us a spiritual man appraises all things spiritually. Jesus saw what was going on spiritually as well as physically. And spiritually, here was a threat, gang. The murder of John the Baptist, I believe, was an overt and provocative act of antagonism toward Jesus. Oh, not by Herod, the Tetrarch. He wasn't smart enough to think about what he was doing. He's obviously threatened when he hears about Jesus. And Jesus, knowing it's not yet his time, strategically removes himself from Herod's immediate reach, but there's still more going on. It's the spiritual warning that intrigues me. The murder of John the Baptist, from a spiritual perspective, could well be viewed as a warning to Jesus from Satan. You're next. You're next. I am coming after you. I pulled this one off. I got John dead. And now I'm gunning for you. And so Jesus withdraws in a boat to a secluded place. By the way, the Bible says by himself, not even with his apostles here. They will catch up somehow with him later. But he withdraws. He gets away by himself. And from this point forward, Jesus knows he's getting closer and closer to the cross. This is, if we were watching a movie of this, this is the point where the soundtrack, you would start to hear a dull thudding drum beat again and again. It would give you the sense that something is impending. And Jesus knows this. The two years of ministering in the Galilee, of the healing, of the teaching, of all that, is over and Jesus now is beginning to head toward the cross. And what's interesting to me is the more close He gets to the cross, the closer He gets, 
the more time he spends with his father. You will see in the scriptures the more Jesus now gets away by himself to pray. Now it's not that he wasn't doing it before, but it just seems to come up a notch. This is how a child of God faces opposition gang. When the opposition gets intense, when it begins to get harder, it calls for more time with the Father. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you, surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. And so Jesus, knowing all this, is spending more time with His Father. He withdraws to a secluded place. And when the people heard of this, they followed Him on foot from the cities. Verse 14, And when He went ashore, He saw a large crowd just awaiting for Him. And He felt compassion for them and healed their sick. I have to kind of chuckle here because it seems to me that the times I determine to get away and be alone with God are the times that my cell phone goes berserk. I I say, I've got an afternoon slotted out just for me and Jesus, and the phone rings off the hook. And what's funny for me is I turn on the answering machine, and I turn off my cell phone, and I close my office door, and I just don't pay attention to any of it. I, I think of the Bebo Norman song, Disappear, where he sings, On a day like this, I want to crawl beneath the rock. A million miles from the world, the noise, the commotion that never seems to stop. On a day like this, I want to run from the routine, run away from the daily grind that can suck the life right out of me. I only know one place I can run to. I want to hide in you, the way, the life, the truth, so I can disappear. You ever feel that way? I just want to disappear from all of it. And so here Jesus is, and He gets away. He's heading to that secluded place to be alone with His Father. And the people run around the shore of the Galilee to meet Him when He gets there. And I would have gotten right back in the boat and said, See ya! Have a nice time. Good luck with whatever's ailing you. Not Jesus. Greater even than His popularity with the people was Jesus' compassion for the people. And He healed their sick. I'm serious, gang. I'm just speaking in my flesh here. I would have run away when I saw those crowds. Especially being in the state that Jesus was in. Spiritually under attack. Emotionally distraught over the death of His cousin. I mean, this has been a long, long day for Jesus already. And when He gets to the place where He can get some peace, there they are, just waiting for Him. And He healed their sick. It blows my mind. Do you know how many people were there? Right after this is the story of the feeding of the 5,000 men. In other words, when Jesus got out of the boat on the shore, there were likely ten to 15,000 people waiting for Him. So much for time alone with Father. But the implication is here, when it says He healed their sick, literally He healed them all. All their sick. This may have been one of the single greatest days of nonstop healing of any in His ministry just by the sheer number of people who were there. Incredible. (laughs) When Jesus walked the Galilee, doctor's offices must have just shut down for lack of business. Oh, Jesus is in town? Take the week. (laughs) His healing ministry gang was simple and compassionate. There were no flashes, no lights, no churning up emotion with commotion, no internet blogs to proclaim a miraculous revival is underway. Jesus just healed people. He just spoke the word, or there was a touch of his hand, or in many cases the people would touch the hem of his robe, not just the woman with the bleeding for 12 years, but in a future study, people would just grab it onto the edge of the road, and he healed them all. He just healed them, because that was his heart. And I, I submit to you that his heart has not changed today. He still wants to heal us all. That's still where his passion is. In a like way, we can learn from, again, watching Jesus. Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's exactly what He did. Every time people were healed, they praised the God of Israel. Because Jesus lived in His life in such a way. Verse 15, When it was evening, the disciples came to Him. Now remember, He hasn't had a break yet. And they said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. 
And so we begin into this miracle. This is the only miracle of Jesus, aside from the resurrection, that's recorded in all four Gospels. Different Gospels will give different ones, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to give a lot of similar ones. John will do different ones. But this one, all four Gospel writers pointed out, it's highly significant. It begins, first of all, with the apostles commissioning themselves as Jesus' board of directors. They now come to him and say, Jesus, here's what needs to happen. We need to send the people away. We need to take care of this right now. I'm not sure who died and put them in charge. Jesus hadn't yet. (laughs) They say, send the people away. And J. Vernon McGee writes that that sounds a lot like the church today. 15,000 people to field or to feed? We We can't do that. We don't have the power for that. We don't have the resources here in this barn. Send them away. Send them to the counselors and the psychiatrists. They can deal with it. Let the government take care of them. I mean, that was a whole platform of Obama, right? The government will take care of you now. And I'm so thankful. I am resting at ease these nights. Because I know my government has things well in hand. I feel great about this. Chamber and McGee said, no wonder the church is powerless. We already talked about unbelief, but in addition to unbelief, there's that tendency to send people away because we don't have enough to give you. We don't have the resources. We don't have the programs. We don't have what you need here. I'm, I'm sorry, so you're just gonna have you need to go somewhere else. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.18, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so you will know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe. Paul had to pray that for people. I pray you will know the kind of power your father has in you, at work in you as believers. Well, yeah, but we don't even have a church building yet. Duh! The power is at work in you. The power of God is at work in you and at work in me. Do we believe Him for that power? Why don't we see people just getting saved right and left? Part of the reason, gang, is we're not convinced that if we bring them here or if we share Jesus with them, that He's got the power to move them to the next step of faith. His power is available to all those who believe. Are we among those, and I just answer this to yourself, are we among those who Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 who hold to a form of godliness while denying its power? Now that convicts me to my socks. Am I holding of a form of God? We have church. We have church here. You know, we did worship. We prayed and now we're studying the Word. Is that a form of godliness that denies the power? I don't know. What does that look like? Les, what does that look like? We've been talking about this. What does it look like to walk in His power? Peter walked in His power. After the resurrection, after the anointing of the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles and Peter would walk by and people were being healed in the shadow That is walking in the power. Yeah, it was 2,000 years ago. That's not available today. When did you find that in the first book of opinions? I don't find that in Scripture. I find that we have the full resource of the power of God at our disposal if we will believe Him for it. I don't even know where I am right now. Oh yeah, so so the apostles' attitude is send the people away because we don't have any way of taking care of their needs. They're with Jesus. <laughs> They've seen what He could do. But we can't take care of the need here. I love Jesus' response, verse 16. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Huh? You still have those Tic Tacs, man? Because I don't have anything. You know? They're, they're caught in, in this position. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You don't send them away. And I think He would say the same to us today. Don't send them away. You take care of the need. How are we going to do that? Well, they said to him, verse 17, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. Bring them to me. Here, here's a shocking truth. The pastor is not the only one called to the work of the church. You are. You're called to the work of the church. You do it. Not the pastor. 
I don't want to do it. I'm done. I quit. I'm not doing the work anymore. I'm going to get my paycheck, but I'm not doing the work anymore. (laughs) No, the reality, gang, is I'm not only a pastor, I'm also a part of the church. I'm just a guy in the church, and so I am called to serve. But the point is, we get this thinking... Well, let me put it to you this way. Ephesians 4.11 He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. The five kind of leadership gifts that Jesus gives to the church. The purpose for equipping people with those five gifts in those five areas is verse 12, Ephesians chapter 4, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles all have a role, and that role is the equipping of the body so that the body, so that the church can do the work of ministry, can care for the needs, not sending people away, but doing the work of ministry, serving and loving. That's why a couple weeks back I asked you all to pray, Lord, am I even supposed to be a part of what you're doing in this fellowship? And if I am, Lord, what is my part? Don't ask me. Because I am not smart enough to figure out what your part is. I can't tell you. When we can sit down and have a conversation, I'm willing to have a conversation about it. But don't, don't ask me to tell you what you're supposed to do. You ask the Father and let Him tell you, let Him show you what your part is in the ministry of this fellowship. And you are invited to bring your part to the work of the kingdom. Yeah, but I can't do anything special. I'm just, you know, I'm just one of the people there. I'm not going to embarrass my wife by saying that that's what she says to me sometimes. Oh, I said that out loud, didn't I? (laughs) Sorry about that. You know what? We have to stop thinking in terms of talent, in terms of overt, overt visual gifts. We have to stop thinking in terms of unique abilities, and we have to just start bringing what we have, which she does. You bring what you have. We don't have anything, Jesus. Oh, we have here five loaves and two fish. Bring them to me. Well, that's silly. Bring them to me. Why I can't do anything. Bring what you have regardless of how small. It doesn't matter what you can do. It doesn't matter if you think it's important or not. Bring what you have. The size of what we offer is never the point. Jesus is the point. And you all know this. He takes the five loaves, he multiplies it, everybody gets fed. You know the story. You know the application. He can take the smallest of things and enlarge it and make it work. All he's asking you to do is bring what you have. And by the way, these were not five big loaves of bread. This was pita bread and fish sticks. That's what we're talking about here. That five loaves and two fish, small, flat, round pita bread. They still eat it in Israel today. You rip it open, you stick stuff in it, and it's a falafel. And that's what they ate. And that's what it was. This was a kid's sack lunch with some anchovies thrown in. This little boy who John tells us about could have eaten the whole thing all by himself. This was not much. Andrew is the one who found this bread. In fact, John 6, 9 says, he said, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And halfway through that sentence, if we stop right there, I go, yeah, Andrew, great faith. Hey, we got food. This will do it. Jesus can do anything with this. But then Andrew has to add... But what are these for so many people? You know, obviously he's starting to feel stupid. Oh man, that was, that was kind of dumb. Why did he even point out the kid with his sack lunch? That's stupid. That's going to feed me and the kid, and everybody else is going to be hungry. You know? Bring them to me, Jesus said. I can't sing, but I can sweep. Bring it to me. Well, I'm not artistic, but I can cook a meal. Bring it to me. I can't preach, but I can tell a friend about Jesus. Bring it to me, Jesus says. It's never what you have that matters. It's who you bring it to. And if you bring it to Jesus, He will do marvelous things. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. He works best in the little things, not in the grandiose things. Remember that. Verse 19 going on. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, and the other gospel writers tell us he did this orderly in 50s and 100s in in groups. 
And he took five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, breaking the loaves. He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, which cracks me up. The board of directors are now the waiters. They're right back where they're supposed to be. They give the food to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children, which is how I get the number of ten to 15,000 people. Let me point out that these were not 12 baskets of crumbs and half-eaten fish pitas. You know, it wasn't like the refuse, the garbage that they scooped up off the ground and, and tossed in and, and they left. That's often what I, I don't know what you think, that's what I've kind of thought. Oh, they're 12 garbage bags, is what they're talking about. No, no. These pieces refer to the original breaking of the bread that he broke into pieces to hand out to people. What came back in these 12 baskets would have been 12 baskets full of good food. 12 baskets full. How many baskets were collected? 12. How many apostles were there? Twelve. Get the point? When Jesus asks you to bring what little you have and give it away, He is more than capable of taking care of you as well. You're not going to lose it. I'll just speak about money for a second. It is really hard for us to let that go. But I'm telling you, when we let it go, He is going to take care of your need. It may not be a full basketful. But I promise you, you're not going to be hungry. You're not going to go without. And He will amaze you and astound you at how He provides for you. Because that's the way the Lord does things. When we bring what we have to Jesus, the leftovers are always more than we could possibly consume ourselves. By the way, again, the shift in the role of the apostles is important. They started out as this board telling Jesus what to do. And now they're waiting for Jesus and on Jesus they become the servants and Jesus said in Matthew 20 verse 25 you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them it is not this way among you but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many one of the most stunning statements in all of scripture I didn't come to be served Jesus says the King, the Creator, the Lord of all He surveyed. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Pastors and singers and prophets and performers attract a lot of attention in the church gang, but servants are the ones who attract the attention of God. Servants are the ones that God is watching and God is impressed with. It's the servants. There's a lot more to consider. But we're going to stop here for tonight. Um, I want to ask you to think about one last thing, though. And that's simply this, with this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Is it possible that what happened here wasn't a miracle at all? After Jesus blessed and broke the bread and the apostles started passing it out, is it possible that the people could have looked around and realized there was a need for food and started pulling it out of their backpacks and suddenly we had a big potluck on the lawn? People just started sharing, and and as it turns out, there was more food than they ever thought was there. It was just already among all the people. Maybe someone, everybody just jumped in, and in a collective show of human kindness, they started potlucking with everybody else, so there's plenty of food, and there was food left over. What a stupid idea! (laughs) And yet, at least one liberal commentator I wrote proposed this. This wasn't a miracle. It's just Jesus got the ball rolling and then we all got involved and it became this grand thing. How stupid is that? Yeah, that's why all four Gospel writers proclaimed it as a miracle. Because it was humanity. It it, it amazes me how quickly someone to turn the manifest miracles of God into odes of human kindness. All we need is just a gentle push and then we become wonderful. No, we don't. We don't. I guarantee someone was fighting over those fish and bread. That's mine. Oh, there's another basket. Okay. All right. Make sure I get mine. That's human nature. John writes the following in John 6.14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is the prophet who has come into the world. They didn't say that because he broke the bread and 
passed it out and someone said, all right, we should share too. What kind of a sign is that? But the people saw this food multiplying. The people knew nobody had anything. And as the miracle increases, they washed around them. John says they were astonished. They were amazed. This is the prophet. What prophet? Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, God is going to raise up among you a prophet from among yourselves. He's going to be a Jew. And he's going to do miraculous things. And he's the one you're going to listen to. And he was talking all the way back in Deuteronomy about Jesus Christ. The people remember that. And they say, oh, this is, this is the prophet. And John 6.15 says, Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The single miracle so impressed and amazed the people, it's the one, this is the one that made them try to force him to become their king right then and there. Interesting. When people come along and try to undermine the miracles of Jesus, they forget the very first verse of all Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that word created in the Hebrew is bara, which means something from nothing. And any God who can make something from nothing can surely produce bread for 15,000 people out of a few loaves and some fish. The power is there, gang. So why isn't God showing more power in my life? It's the Nazareth effect. I read an article, an interesting article today about Nazareth. And the Jerusalem Post Christian edition of December 2008 said that Nazareth, Nazareth traditionally maintained a Christian majority. That's the place. Because it was Jesus' hometown, the Christians in the region kind of gravitated to Nazareth. And over 2,000 years, that has been a highly populated Christian area until recently. In 1999, the uh, statistic changed to today, actually, it's about two-thirds Muslim, one-third Christian. Not many Jews. Again, in 99, Muslims there seized a plaza directly in front of the 1,700-year-old Church of the Annunciation. And just this last week, a banner was raised at the plaza's entrance bearing this passage from the Koran. He is Allah, the one and only Allah, the eternal absolute. He begetteth not, nor was he begotten, and there is none like him. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This verse out of the Koran is a direct blasphemy of Jesus Christ. Raised on a banner in the hometown of Jesus at this plaza. He is not begotten. Nazareth today mirrors the problem of Nazareth back then and its unbelief in the one true God. The same thing is going on there. The same reason the people couldn't believe in Jesus as Messiah is the reason they don't today. He could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief, Matthew 13, 58. Again, the problem was not with the rabbi, it was with the reception. And the issue is never with the information, it's with the informality. And I say that because I think sometimes in the church, in our Christian lives, we inadvertently move to Nazareth. We inadvertently find ourselves in that place where we limit the power of God because we are so comfortable with who we think He is. I'm comfortable here. I've had people tell me, I don't want to build a church building and move over there because I really am comfortable here. You're limiting the power of God. And people say, you know, I love coming on Wednesday night when there's just teaching. But when you do those prayer circles, man, can you at least give me a heads up so I don't come? I'm not comfortable. Nazareth effect. It's the Nazareth effect. Moving forward in faith is never comfortable. It's never easy. It's never kick back. But we're not called to be those who kick back. We are called to be those who step forward and who walk in trust that the power of God will always be proven true. And we can rest in that truth. Do we limit the power of God because we become so comfortable with Jesus as we see Him? And if you feel this way at all, and if, if, that, if you think about this and go, wow, I am pretty comfortable. I am pretty much just kind of settled in what I'm doing. If you're willing to admit that, maybe, just maybe, unbelief is the limiting factor. And maybe God is calling on you to believe Him for more than you've ever believed Him for in the past. 
By the way, there's an answer for you if, if that happens to be you. Let me read you two more verses. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, after this long, long day, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Jesus hadn't forgotten his original desire to get across the beach and go to a secluded place. That had stayed in his mind all day long. He loved the people. He had compassion for the people. He had to heal them. That's who he was. He had to feed them. That's who he was. But he sends them off and he never forgot. I still need my time with Dad. I've still got to get away and be with my father. And his power to respond, gang, to all these needs with such compassion and power, it flowed directly out of his relationship with the father. Rick, I don't understand. I don't understand what you mean that I've got to move forward out of a place of unbelief. I don't understand what you mean that I'm kind of in this comfortable place. I don't know how to get out of the comfortable place. What do I do? I'll tell you what. Number one, you spend more time with your father. And he will move you out of the out of the comfortable and into the uncomfortable. But he'll be right there with you. And it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Is that okay for us to have fun while we're following Jesus? And it'll be awesome. And it'll hurt. And it'll be difficult. And it'll overwhelm us at times. And so we just get away with the Father again. Spend some time praying. The Nazareth effect. Let's avoid it here. Let's be a different people. Let's pray to Him right now. Father, Lord, I pray against complacency. And I don't know, Father, possibly I'm preaching to the choir tonight because everybody's here. (laughs) We all got out of our houses and made it to the barn on this cold night. I can only pray, Father, what I know. And I know in my own heart there's complacency. And I pray against it. I pray, Father, that You will draw me out. And that You will increase my faith in Your power to move and to do what I never thought You would do. Even if I believed You could. And I pray tonight, Father, that You will break the grip of that Nazareth effect, that grip of unbelief among us. And if there's anybody here who is, who is wobbling on whether or not they should take the next step forward in Jesus, I pray, Father, You would give the gentle push. Motivate us by love, compassion. May we be like Jesus. We've watched now, we've seen tonight even, how He moved and how He behaved and what mattered and what was important to Him. Let us be that way, Father. I pray that we would be a fellowship that is responding to need. And when we don't think we have enough to respond with, we respond with what we have. And Lord, we bring it all to You. Tonight, we bring our hearts to You, as simple as they are. And we hand them to You, and we ask You, Lord Jesus, to do whatever You want with them. Thank You, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, Sunday, Jesus walks on the water, which is even cooler. So we'll talk about that Sunday morning.